This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com. When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one book at a time, part of the FM Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And this is a very special episode because joining us this week are the authors of the brand new book, Bob Dylan, Mixing Up the Medicine, Mark Davidson and Parker Fischel. Hi, guys. Hey, Rob. How you doing? Hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Uh, this book is an amazing artifact. And of course, anyone who's listening to this, if you're listening to it the day the show comes out, the book is out now. So you've had a chance to go buy it. And I absolutely recommend that you do if you're a Bob Dylan fan, because of course you are, you're listening to the show. This is just an amazing piece of work. And we're going to get to all that in as much detail as we can. But first, you know, since you guys haven't been on the show before, I have to ask the standard intro question for both of you. Parker, let me start with you. How did you become a fan of Bob's in the first place? Sure. Um, well, I had to do a little digging uh around in my own archive to answer that uh question but um i grew up in a musical family not in the sense of any of us having any real appreciable musical talent but my dad was in the business he actually worked at cbs in the 70s music was always a big part of what was happening in our household and obviously my parents being baby boomers dylan was a large part of that but i think I around, uh, it was in sixth grade, I was asked to do a Time Man of the Year project, and uh, I chose to do Bob Dylan. So um, I remember that Time Out of Mind had come out, and that uh, he'd got had that, you know, freak illness, and he met the Pope. And I think all those figured somewhat prominently in, um, in what I put together. And then, yeah, drew this great, you know, version of, of Dylan and the sort of, you know, that Time Out of Mind, like collarless jacket that he he wore a lot so um yeah that was like when it dylan fluttered into my consciousness in a more real way and then obviously as i kind of got older and kept listening and my appreciation has only grown and and in the years in which i've been lucky enough to sort of root around in the the bob dylan archive it's uh it's grown immeasurably that's how i came to bob dylan was time out of mind the first i mean you said your, your parents were fans but like was time out of mind the first record of his that you got like the first you know, complete piece? Uh, I, it would have been songs. It would have been songs oh. that I was hearing. I remember stuck inside of Mobile with the Memphis Blues again, because I remember that was a, a refrain that my mom liked to pull out, you know, oh, mama, <laughs> can this really be the end? <laughs> so yeah, it was more songs. Obviously, a lot of the, um, for the school project, a lot of the um, Blown in the Wind, Masters of War, you know, the early sort of folk material. Um figured heavily into that but yeah i remember lovesick and and things like that he was in the news a lot that year you know like just in the general news in the mid 90s you had to kind of search for bob dylan news you had to be a fan but in 97 as you mentioned he had the weird illness and then he meets the pope and he had time out of mind like he was just in the news a lot for regular people to interact with like wow oh yeah bob dylan he's you know for some people probably didn't know he's still around that guy like he's doing all these things all of a sudden it was kind of it was a- like 2020 when yeah, all of a sudden, right. you know, he's in control of the conversation again. Everyone's <laughs> a buzz. <laughs> Absolutely. So, all right, Mark, what about you? Well, I am pretty firmly Gen X. I was born in 75. Uh, so around the time that, uh, you know, my first musical love was uh, the Monkees. 
because the monkeys uh, television show was on reruns uh, every day on WFLD in Chicago. Uh, and I would watch that and I loved it. And then the Beatles and I got into, you know, sixties music sort of as a, as a hand-me-down and really got into that in middle school. So around the time of, uh, Mid eighties, there was, uh, a resurgence. Um, certainly Biograph was part of that, but, um, a lot of that music was, you know, celebrating 20th anniversaries of, of whatever. And there was a documentary on, on PBS, uh, in Chicago that I, I watched and, and recorded onto, to VHS and rewatched and rewatched and rewatched, <clears throat> which was called It Was 20 Years Ago Today. And it was, you know, broadly about uh, the anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's and uh, what was going on uh, culturally and musically at that time period. And and there were a couple of clips of, of Bob Dylan in it. Uh, one sort of raucous performance of Ballad of a Thin Man, which uh, was cool. But there was also the um, uh, a clip from the San Francisco press conference in 65, the Song and Dance Man quip and uh and i thought this guy seems kind of cool but i didn't you know you know it was the beatles and stones and pink floyd and you know and then i turned punk and metal and all those things so it was it was later on early college when when i came back to dylan and Ernest, and then and then really really got immersed uh particularly in in many of the early to mid 60s records um, and then it just grew from there. I had a radio show. I went to Florida State University to finish my undergrad in music history and literature and classical guitar. And I was a big music fan and, and, and had a, a radio show from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Saturday night to Sunday morning. Really, really great time slot, but, uh, it allowed <laughs> me to play whatever I wanted. And, you know, whether that was Jeff Buckley's cover of Kangaroo, uh, which is long and, and beautiful and wonderful or, uh, last thoughts on Woody Guthrie. And so I would play that pretty much on every show and then go, uh, crawl out the window, uh, on the, uh, top floor of the different ball building in Tallahassee at, at Florida state and, and go sort of look and listen to the sounds of, of Tallahassee as, as, uh, uh, Dylan's poetry washed over me. And it was a, it's it's still a fond memory for me. I assume you've both seen him live at this point. Wait, he still yeah. plays live? <laughs> yeah, read your own book, Mark. Come on. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. After I guess the the coded the uh the story that I told about my sixth grade project is that um after that my parents were like, Okay, we gotta go see Bob Dylan and it was one of the tours with Phil Lesh, and so we drove out to I grew up in the DC area, so we drove out to Merriweather Post Pavilion and um you know, we got there kind of early and it was like, okay, well, like, let's, let's grab a bite before we go in. You know, there's no way that, you know, Bob Dylan is going to be opening for Phil Lesh, thinking we had all this time. Uh, and uh, as we <laughs> enter the venue, we're getting the encore, like, you know, all along the watchtower or something like that. And then we got to enjoy a Phil Lesh show. So, uh, the first, <laughs> the first attempt was kind of a bust, but, uh, been more successful in the years since. Oh man, yeah, I got burned once that way too. So <laughs> okay, well, all right, that's uh, that's fantastic. So all right, let's let's talk about this book. I mean, this is the kind of book uh, that once you own it, you will have it on your shelf. Your most people's burgeoning Bob Dylan bookshelf for 
decades to come because it is so dense. It is so rich. It is so all encompassing in so many ways. And, you know, you, you, I read it sort of front to back because of, you know, that's sort of my brain works, but it really is going to be the kind of book that you're going to pull out every couple of months or every couple of years and dig out a chapter because it's, you know, like Dylan's work, you can kind of jump all over the place. So, but let's, let's start at the beginning as best we can here, which is how did the idea for this book come about? Was it always sort of in tandem with the center? Is this, you know, the center's opening and we're going to do a book about this? Was it a later idea? How did, you know, what, what are the tracks of those two things? Yeah. Um, so the, Bob Dylan Archive came to Tulsa in in 2016, and the Bob Dylan Center itself opened in May of 2022, so last year. And uh, in between then, we had a pandemic, uh, which uh, actually gave us a lot of time to focus on uh, designing and curating and building uh, the, the center as it is now. But in the years leading up to that, a couple of colleagues of mine, um, Michael Shakin, who was the inaugural curator of the Bob Dylan Archive, and Robert Polito, who is a poet and a professor at the New School, uh, they were bringing people to Tulsa, uh, artists, writers, musicians, uh, many of the essays in the book uh, stem from uh, that. And they wanted people to come in and check out the Dylan Archive and to do a public program in Tulsa, sort of generate some some buzz but also you know bring some really really great people uh to the city to do events and engage with with what's going on there so so yeah beginning in 2017 they they started bringing people out and the the task was to have these folks come in and choose an item from the Dylan archive and uh, to write an essay on it in any style that they chose, whether it was, you know, analyzing lyrics or historical, you know, overview, or uh, there, there were people who wrote, you know, poetic reflections on, on certain songs. It was, it was really, really wide ranging and, and up to, you know, the, the inspiration of the authors. It, if there's a sub theme to the Bob Dylan Center, it's on uh, creativity, on 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 Dylan's own restless creativity, but also tapping into the creative urges of you know anybody who comes through the doors, and that was the the mo behind uh, you know saying, hey, you all are are great creative people, and 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 find something you like, and and do what you do, uh, and that became you know the the core of the book. From there, um, uh, we had this fledgling book, and and we we came across Callaway Books uh, and started working with them, and and that's where the idea really really started to blossom and take on a, a six hundred and eight page you know magnum opus tome sort of shape, which uh, I think I think the 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 punctuation of the essays in in the overall book. I, th- I think readers will agree it's it's a nice sort of like way to you know get some distance and then dive back into uh what's what's happening overall yeah absolutely it's it's kind of it could get overwhelming if it's just picture after picture after picture of of stuff as awesome as that is but then you've got these really interesting essays sort of dotting it across you know ac- across the whole history of his career and people summing up and talking about, as you said, what they want to talk about. And that leads into something I want to ask you about was I was curious about what guidance that you were offering these essayists because you you just said like they got to write about what they wanted to write about. 
I'm going to assume, though, some of them, there's probably like a log jam about people that want to write about the 60s or Blood on the Tracks or the later stuff, and maybe not as many on Knocked Out Loaded or Down in the Groove. Was, you, was you, there anybody that you had to kind of say, anybody want to talk about this you, period? You would be wrong. Um, I'm happy to hear that. Surprisingly, uh, we had an overwhelming number of essays on the mid 1980s. Uh, that, that was a period that, that really got a lot of it attention. And, um, you know, there, there were, there were periods in there that, uh, were the Bob Dylan archive that we have is, uh, starts in earnest with the manuscript for Chimes of Freedom and it runs through Tempest in 2012. So that's, you know, there are a, a couple of big chunks of his life on either side of that. And no manuscript materials. Tempest was the last album of original material that he had written uh, at the time of the acquisition of of the archive. There were, you know, pieces from uh, some of his his you know Fallen Angels and some of those those albums. But um, uh, but that that was so. After that, we didn't have you know manuscripts for people to to pour over. But uh, certainly, lots of other options. One of the things that I have talked about on the show repeatedly is when you see Bob live uh, and this is this is a feeling that really hits you I think the first time you see Bob live but I don't think it really goes away is when you're in the room with him you, you get that moment of like I'm in the room with the guy this is the you know it it stops becoming this sort of like he's this figure that I see in on record album covers or on television or or whatever and there he is there's the guy you know, the, the the guy that did all these amazing things, and I'm in the same physical space as this guy. And it's a very, I find it to be a very powerful feeling that even though I've seen Bob 25 times now live, it doesn't really fade. And I had that same feeling when I went to the center where, you know, it was just this idea of like, well, there's this center and it's going to be full of his stuff. Well, that's interesting. And I'm going to check that out. But then when you get there and you're physically looking at the objects, you know, the stuff from his wallet, the the note paper that he writes Chimes of Freedom on. I mean, the hotel stationery or whatever. And it really has quite an amazing effect. And one of the essays kind of gets to that the, by Lee Ronaldo, the one called I Just Want to See It, where he talks about being able to physically see the first Dylan record that Bob ever ha- was involved in. And, and I really found that to be quite profound and that it's like, yeah, there is just there's something to the tangible connection to the artifact when you see it in front of you uh, in a way that just is really, really powerful. And so I don't even know if I have a question necessarily, but I just would hope that too, you could talk a little bit about trying to convey that with the book of having these photographs of seeing the physical objects. Do you, do you guys have that feeling when you went to the center and you started, you know, getting to see all this stuff? All right. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's, something we've thought about a lot and it's it's complicated because um you know we don't want these things to be relics you know uh michael chaikin again the the former um curator of the the bob dylan archive and and who helped um select so many of the essays in the book um turned me on to this great academic work by a medievalist named peter brown called the cult of the saints all about how you know the the parts of the cross and the bone from you know saint peter's toe and all that kind of stuff and 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 how sort of cults grew around uh you know reverent reverential sort of cults grew around these things 
I don't know why I bring that up, except to say that, like, we didn't <laughs> want people to come and, you know, um, like the ob- these are these were working objects for for Dylan in a lot of cases, you know, like the thing that is so easy to forget when you look at the book is that the manuscripts, as much work as he puts into the what, like 40 some extant versions of dignity that we have, <laughs> that's just a tool to get him to a place where he feels there's a song and he can bring it to the studio. And then in the studio, it's going to go through whatever other transformations musically. And then a song like that, it's like you come out the other side and he's like, it's not done. Right. And so I think it's easy to lose, uh, you know, it's easy to lose sight of that, obviously, in a book. In the center, we can kind of emphasize that this is a process and that it never really ends. Right. Like Dignity, you know, Dignity or Jokerman or Tangled Up in Blue. These are all songs that will evolve over a period of time. And, and like you were saying, in the live shows, maybe that's part of that feeling is that. Like there's that freshness. It's never this stale experience. It's always a new, you know, a new take on the, uh, you know, the old thing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there is something to, you know, the, the putting of pen to paper that is remarkable to think about and to see. And it makes those things, those episodes sort of real in a way that, you know, maybe just having the song on a record doesn't. You can see, the labor that goes into it, you know, one of the things that I've been saying surprised, not surprised me, but with people who have been creating, you know, art of the high level that Dylan has over 60 plus years and, you know, continuing into the future now, we tend to erase some of that labor. It's like, you know, look at Chimes of Freedom, you know, look at uh, ISIS, look at whatever, like these are great works of art. But it's like, okay, but here's everything that went into it. There's like tons of sort of creative spirit. Then there's a lot of judicious editing. And, you know, those are just the parts that we hear here or whatever um, that we're sort of privy to because the historical record exists. So, yeah. So I think that that as much as the book can kind of give an insight into how Dylan works, which I think is still you could read this whole book and you have and it's still elusive. Um, I think it's, you know, changed over the years. Uh, Dylan has said as much in interviews. You know, it's sort of a, a quasi-spiritual mystical process. And so, you know, I think, yeah, as we say in the introduction, like the book won't give you the easy answer, but it will maybe allow you to ask the right questions. And I, yeah, that's sort of maybe how I'd address that. Yeah. <laughs> I, that. Yeah, a lot. Um, I, you know, I, I work, with these materials every day, uh, you know, at, at the Bob Dylan archive, I, I am in charge of the materials and it's very easy. And especially when I was doing a lot of tours early on before the center was, was out to, you know, drag out the manuscripts and put them on display and have people come in and look at them and, and forget that, you know, I've got, all of these manuscripts from, you know, I've got two versions of subterranean homesick blues sitting in front of me typescript, you know? (laughs) Um, And, and so with the center, you know, with the center and with the book, we had, we had some choices to make. And as, as Parker was alluding to, and and this is something else that was a a guiding principle is, you know, as, as Michael Chaikin used to say, we don't want to make a shrine to Bob Dylan. Like the, the intention of the Bob Dylan center isn't to, you know, to do, you know, we, we, 
want people to have a more nuanced experience than one would if somebody went to a, a hard rock cafe or something where, you know, there is a, a you know, an instrument that's signed by Limp Biscuit, and, you know, and it's like, okay, here's my cheeseburger and, you know, Dr. Pepper or whatever. <laughs> the, I mean, so that, that brought up a lot of really interesting quandaries for somebody with as long and varied a c- career as, as Dylan has had, uh, both in the curation and design of the Bob Dylan Center and, and also in putting together the book. We knew we couldn't draw people in in the middle and and expect it to appeal to anybody more than you know dylan diehards and our mission is is many folds but you know educational you know giving a sense of of dylan's life and career inspiring one's own creativity like there are a lot of levels that we're trying to work you know on and so as as we were putting ideas together for the center you know when we are also working in a physical space. So these are all things that are different than than the book. To curate a museum, uh objects in space, you know, you're sort of working within uh particular confines. How much stuff can I put in a room? And how much stuff can I put in a room elegantly without sort of like, you know, just wheeling out carts. With the the center, we knew we wanted to focus on Dylan's creative process but also give an overview of the biography of Dylan. And you've seen this, you know, we have around the perimeter of the Columbia Records Gallery on the first floor, we have, you know, these eras, um, these these segments of of uh, of Dylan's life, um, which we argued a lot about. And then we have in the center uh, uh, six concrete pillars around which there is uh, casework and so we had six songs to play with and we argued even more about those those decisions but our intention was to give anybody with any sort of knowledge of dylan the ability to 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 walk in and take something away with the book <clears throat> we were working sort of with that same set of principles uh, without the ability to use audiovisual materials, without the ability to have tactile three-dimensional objects, and with this set of, you know, two to three dozen essays that had been written about objects. So all of those decisions we were we were sort of juggling. And and the eras that are in the center are a bit different than the eras that are in the book for a variety of reasons our thinking has changed you know we we wanted to highlight different uh stories aspects of his career um it really yeah we yeah it 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 forced its own set of uh uh pretty big arguments um but i think we landed at a place where uh we're really pleased with uh how everything's represented uh just can i say one more thing rob Sure. Sorry, not to interrupt, just to sort of maybe tie it all uh, to, a, 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 you know, in a, in a bow. Um, I think the thing with the objects are, yes, they're like extraordinary and like that going to see it or seeing on the page, it makes it come alive for somebody in a way, you know, like that's that connection is important. And it's how, you know, people get interested in this and keep going, keep the thing going. Um, I think, you know, what what the caution is, is that there's no Rosetta stone, you know, there's no 
sort of turnkey that's going to make Dylan come into focus for you. <laughs> the Part sled. Of the, <laughs> the being the Dylan sled. Fan, I think, I hope, is is the very fact that, you know, he has purposefully sort of alighted giving us sort of that kind of answer or, um, and constructing sort of this, this puzzle that we're all sort of playing with. And that's part of the fun of being a fan. But, uh, but yeah, so with that said, I think, you know, with the objects and the materiality, what we wanted to do was let the store, like let the objects tell the story they're going to tell. And then, you know, it's, it's, that's like all we can do. Right. Is, um, you know, sort of bring together some of the details and sort of put it in the wide arc of Dylan's career. And then people can draw the conclusions that they're going to draw or take that and run with it further. Um, And that's sort of the hope for the book. One of the things that struck me at the center. And then again, when I was reading the book was uh, at least up until rough and rowdy ways, we are fortunate that Bob is still like kind of a Luddite when it comes to the technology, you know, he's writing his lyrics on paper which leaves an artifact behind as it's going to be a lot less interesting. If he writes his next record on his notes app, what are I you going to do? No knock on Eric church, but I went to the country music hall of fame recently and they had a big Eric church, uh, the country music singer exhibit. And it was remarkable. The, it was remarkable just because he's an artist who, who has emerged in the 21st century, the difference in the, um, in the material that was sort of available to them to construct this exhibit. It was exactly that. It was screenshots of a notes app. Um, there was like a couple, like there was a card from Springsteen, which was one of the few material objects and then a bunch of set lists because that's what's getting printed out. Right. <laughs> but otherwise it was largely, you know, yeah. And tour passes, but it was like the, um, the tactility it's like Dylan, the archive, when you see it is remarkable because, you know, it's almost the entire, history of of you know recorded music i mean it's not cylinders and it's not 78s but it's acetates Mm -hmm. with that first disc that lee ronaldo is is writing about and it you know marches through all the formats up to present and um in that way you could yeah you could you could sort of write a whole book and essay about that yeah i mean thank god he's not using you know talk to text for writing lyrics now <laughs> he's, he's still he's still batting it out you know with his little and his that little plankton sized handwriting that he's got i mean you know thank god for us we have that to, to look after um so what was the selection process like because i mean it's a mountain of material you you guys had to work from i mean how did you how do you even start i mean where do you how do you start winnowing it down to imagine i mean the book is still 600 pages but the center is huge and it's only from what I understand a tiny percentage of what's out of what's available. I mean, how, where do you, the two of you even decide or how do you start this process? Yeah. The it's, it's a question I've been contending with, with, you know, exhibitions that I've been working on as well, including one around the book. And, and uh, it's, we're, you know, we are limited to what actually exists. And, and this goes back to the sort of, the analog nature of the of the archive and the fact that that these are physical objects that exist you know they are there to be touched and 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 handled so not everything you know not everything has uh a set of you know draft manuscripts not everything is is dignity or even you know the manuscripts from bringing it all back home or 
Highway 61. Um, in fact, there are there are a lot of manuscripts that don't exist in the uh, in the Bob Dylan archive. Uh, we have we have as complete as 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 what we can get right now. Um, uh, but those things are finite, and we we wanted to have this is another thing about you know the exhibitions and display and 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 how things are presented things need to be in context again there's the the sort of idea of you know wall power and if i go walk around a, an exhibit full of guitars or musical instruments you know it's like the there are there are easy ways to to get oohs and ahs and then there are ways to tell stories and and in this case we had you know we've got a life and we've got periods in a life and we've got stories that we want to tell within there and those stories may not be the same stories that a biographer would tell because those stories are in many ways told through the objects themselves so parker being the super sleuth that he is was going through a bunch of photographs of of bob dylan uh from town hall and he stumbled across this photo of bob walking off stage with a piece of paper in his hand or what we assume was bob dylan walking off stage but he you know definitely had a it's not a great photo but we know when it's from and and so we believe that that is bob walking off stage holding last thoughts on woody guthrie uh-huh. you know you know those those sorts of 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 things that that we can pull from from actual objects that we have and and to be able to tell stories that's one of my favorite ones and and I can gush about it because it was not my discovery so <laughs> but there are all kinds of discoveries like that i mean so yeah i think we had the experience of putting together the center and as mark sort of said i don't know if she spelled it in these exact terms but we had this idea of skimmers swimmers and divers Skimmers are people who are just going to maybe who have, you know, maybe don't know or or, or like Bob Dylan at all, but they're getting dragged along. Um, they're in town you know, for some other reason. And they're like, oh, there's a Bob Dylan Center. That's kind of cool. That exactly. Cool. They're just there to check it out. And you got to give them some way to work their way, you know, through the center and something to hold on to. And, and that's sort of what nine eras in the center was supposed to be in the Columbia Records Gallery. And then you've got your uh, swimmers who are people who want to go a little bit deeper. And um, they want, you know, they maybe have a, a familiarity, they have some favorite albums, but they don't know the whole of Dylan's, you know, oeuvre or, or all the different, you know, sort of things he's done throughout his career. And you got to give them something to interest them as well. And then you have, you know, the divers who are, um, I guess, you know, we're, we're preaching to the converted here in <laughs> this uh, podcast, but, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, that that's, you know, people like us who want to go deep, who want to, you know, want to see something they haven't seen before they've seen a lot and they want to see something or hear something that they haven't seen before and so those are sort of the audiences that we had in the center and we took that sort of you know into the book as well in the way that we sort of tried to construct uh out of this mountain of material and so when we finished the center (laughs) um as much as the center could be finished um you know, we kind of use the archive wall as a jumping off point as like, that's a place where there are little cases that show some of these objects, some of which you'll see in the book. And if you go to a touch screen, you can dial in and read like a little bit about them. And if there's associated music or video, you can, you know, 
hear and watch some of that as well, or associated photographs, etc. Um, so that was like one um, sort of inspiration. And then we just had this mountain of material that we couldn't fit in, you know, things we all loved because like Mark said, when we did, you know, we're trying to narrow it down to six songs, everybody has their own, you know, favorite songs and you want to get it in there somehow. So we had this sort of, you know, mountain of material left over from the center. We had the core of what we had gone into the center. And then Mark and I just, you know, went into the archive and went through page by page, photo by photo, everything, at least one. Well, we each did it individually. So that's twice. And then, you know, subsequently a couple of times as we were honing in on the stories, trying to find more and more. Right. And it was just like anything that looked interesting or intriguing or like, I think this might be this or, you know, and then we had sort of these these pots in which we could go back and say, well, what is the most sort of interesting, you know, material here? And that gave us a lot of um, what are the stories between here as we sort of could identify what things were, um, you know, maybe it opened up a connection to another item. And this is work that we're doing. This is work that, you know, scholars who are coming to do research at the Bob Dylan archive are, are doing as well. Um, that's why I think, you know, this is like uh this is not a, the end, this book is not the end point. It's more like the, you know, the touchstone, you know, the first point and things are only going to move, um, you know, further, but yeah, we, we kind of had all these materials and, uh, and we just started, you know, zeroing in, I think, you know, for the, for the skimmers, you know, that's why you have this sort of chronological approach to telling the story I think in the text, the running text that we've written, we try to like introduce the idea for somebody who might, or the episode or the object or whatever it is for someone who might have no sort of context. But then we try to weave in, you know, details that, you know, speak to that object. Um, so for instance, there's a great photo of, um, Dylan and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and um, Peter Orlovsky and Julian Orlovsky um, out to dinner after in 1965, after the meeting of the poets at City Lights Bookstore by um, a gentleman who went on to be or was a great um, designer at Torre Sotsas. I'm sure I butchered the pronunciation of his name, but as we were researching that, we found like a, a tabloid writer, this guy, Herb Kahn, who I think I'm trying to remember the, he coined some other like ter- a term that we all use, like, uh, man, I can't remember it. Anyway, he has like a gossip column about, you know, Dylan and Ferlinghetti and, and, and these poets sort of out in the San Francisco night and getting kicked out of one place because they had long hair and go to the next place. And it's like those kinds of details make this sort of photo come alive, right? It's more than just, you know, a static image of four people around or five people around a dinner table. It's, it's now like, you know, part of an evening. Um, you can kind of set it in context. So I think, you know, those are the kinds of, um, things we were trying to do to animate sort of and, and address some of the, um, you know, uh, skimmers as well as the divers. Another example might be like, we found a, um, a notepad, um, a hotel notepad that had a bunch of songs written on it. And like from, you know, the song, the, where the notepad is, what the songs are, you can kind of triangulate. And it's like, maybe, you know, I think, you know, again, it's hard to put definitive, you know, 
uh, say definitively about any of this, but it appears that it's, you know, related to, you know, Dylan working out songs for the, that he's going to rehearse with the Grateful Dead in, in 87. Um, so there are things like that that can, um, I don't know, they just kind of make the, uh, the stories come alive in a way that only the archive can, can allow. Um, like what I've, been saying is that we created like an inside out biography so it's it's a biography but it's told by objects in the archive and we tried to really you know there bob dylan the statistic that i've heard and i don't know if this is true is he's most written about american other than abraham lincoln so there's plenty of work on bob dylan where you can go and you can get some of these other pieces but this is you know we wanted to highlight the things that only you could get from you know the bob dylan archive you both have talked about, obviously, the center is interactive. That's by its nature. It's designed to be, that's why it's a center, not a museum. It's meant to be, you know, embrace creativity and talk about your own creativity. And there's that section where you can like mix things and all that other kind of stuff. But the book obviously can't be interactive to a certain extent. I mean, it's, it's just, you have to look at it and read it in, in your mind or, or maybe this didn't even really come up. Is the book a biography of the man's life or is it a biography of the music the work or not just the music the work because obviously he does lots of other things it's not music related but how i guess i'm always bad like you know there's got to be some artifacts that that you've come across that are revealing about something personal about the man himself but doesn't have necessarily a lot of impact on the work in your, you know, is there is there a divide in your mind about that, or is it all just kind of one big thing? Well, the book, like the center, like I said, we we are focused on uh, the musical career of Bob Dylan, the creative life, the creative process, creativity, and uh, you know, we we don't really delve into you know, in as much as as yes, uh, you know, the the personal and the the creative are you know totally intertwined uh you know down to how the archive sort of came to be many of those early manuscripts like when he was a you know a person of no fixed address uh you know <laughs> things kind of they you know ended up uh in any number of places but yeah really really we're focused on you know the the creative lyrical musical life of you know one of the most important musicians of the 20th and 21st centuries and and we think that that focus uh you know without getting into you know mere biography like like the the kind of train spotting and and personal kind of you know assumptions and things you know you you can't know you know i don't know Parker's personal life and innermost thoughts or why he does what he does. But uh, uh, all I get is, you know, uh, Parker's, you know, uh, work and his creativity and and the like. And that's enough for me. I guess what I'm thinking about about, like the the Christmas cards, you know, like the ones from George Harrison and Paul McCartney. I mean, like that. Yeah, it has some connection to the work because it's it's from another famous musician. But it really is more of a personal item. And it's very charming. To, to read these notes, to read George Harrison saying my best to Sarah and the kids. But that is obviously designed very specifically to give us a personal insight as to this is what Bob Dylan's mailbox looks like on any given, any given day. 
Yeah, I think it's that's where the, you know, personal and the sort of creative life, you know, blur. But I think we we included them not because they were personal, but because they were ways to explore Dylan's relationship with like the various Beatles um, and because they can be like, you know, they're they're you know, after he sees them at the Isle of Wight, or he doesn't see McCartney because McCartney's having a child, but like, you know, it comes that year. I think we were trying to show, you know, the, it's not just Dylan's work, but he has this creative network. He's part of a community of, of, of artists, visual artists, you know, like in the archive, there's letters from like Bryce Martin, um, you know, but he's, this, uh, he's a part of this community of musicians, creatives, you know, that straddle. I think we wanted to show, you know, pieces of that network because I think that filters through into, um, the work that we get, not necessarily, um, you know, because of a, a Christmas card, but because there was some sort of, uh, you know, a give and take with McCartney that goes across, you know, however many years you know that goes from the first time that dylan heard a beatles record to you know we hear mccartney getting a copy from a french dj of free wheeling and playing it on repeat and then now we're at like you know um in 2023 and they're still like you know exchanging compliments or like mccartney sends the letter or the the christmas card but then he sends a letter about theme time radio hour in in, you know the mid 2000s so i think we wanted to show the scope and the scale of you know that 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 these relationships these friendships sort of um we're supporting like that they're not necessarily directly impacting work but they're artists supporting one another and there is this creative world it's the same reason you included the the notepad um with the eat the document editing notes where he's got Alfred Hitchcock's, you know, um, uh, address or like, you know, the, the, I think we allude to it and it's shown in the setter, but some, some home movie footage of him, at, you know, on the set of Otto Preminger's in harm's way. Like there are these connections that go beyond music and they all sort of um, feed into the creative life of Bob Dylan, because we all know movies play a big role or poetry plays a big role or whatever. Um, I think that was the intention of, of some of these glimpses of, of maybe the more, you know, personal side of, of Dylan. Yeah. And with, with George Harrison in particular, I mean, you can, you can trace that, that relationship going, you know, across decades Sure, and, and, and certainly with the, uh, the letter with the, the song thing of me, Bob, uh that that they worked on together i mean it's it is it is the creative life in in cases like that it's it's uh i i'm trying to think of 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 places where we just wanted to show off because we could and and i can't think of i can't think of many well i think even the places where we could have shown off like i'm not tooting our own horn here that but um you know like the things where it could have been gratuitous right we could have chosen any page from a Johnny Cash letter to display that Dylan and Johnny Cash were friends and writing letters, or, you know, we're beginning a friendship and writing letters, but we chose, you know, a page that talks about Mother Maybelle Carter of the Carter family, you know, listening to Restless Farewell. It has a musical connection. Mother Maybelle ties in all the way, you know, like we hear about the Carter family repeatedly through the book. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of the the sort of personal correspondence that's included 
um, you know, has sort of, yeah, musical or creative value or it introduces another thing is we zeroed in on particular individuals who, you know, show up throughout the, the Dylan's, you know, uh, creative life because, you know, there's a story to tell in tracing Michael Bloomfield or, you know, any of these other sort of people that either he was directly, you know, working with or who were an influence that we hear about, you know, in the Minnesota period. And then they're going to pop back up um, in, uh, you know, in later years. So the idea was just to sort of uh, go beyond, you know, the bounds of space and time to sort of, again, give you that, that sort of big high level picture that uh, with the details that only the archive could sort of, you know, illuminate or, or bring to light. Uh, you know, Parker, you mentioned movies a second ago, and that inspired something in my, it, it just occurred to me, uh, was one, some of the, my favorite artifacts at the center and in the book are all the Columbia Records advertising ancillary material that, that, that they've done for all of his records over the years, you know, the posters and the, the dioramas and the stand-ups, you know, all this bric-a-brac that come with being a record company you're trying to promote the product and we know from anyone who knows anything about like movie history movie studios are not always the best um keepers of this material you know they'll they'll spend the money to keep casablanca in good condition of course or wizard of oz but a lot of other a lot of lesser works have been allowed to wither fade away in some cases and so I'm kind of curious, a lot of that stuff that you had from CBS, from Sony, whatever you want to call it now, like, were they, do they have all this stuff or was this stuff you got from collectors? Like what is, is, is Columbia Records having a warehouse somewhere where they are holding on to cardboard displays for street legal? I mean, <laughs> cause I, you know, like, I can't believe they keep all that stuff, but do they, is the, are they, are they good at that? Well, uh, Sony does have an amazing archive and they have to keep, uh, keep materials not, o- well, keep materials not only related to Bob Dylan, but to the, you know, probably million other acts that they've, you know, signed on all their, you know, the labels that they represent, uh, not just Columbia Records, but RCA and so on and so forth. Um, so they have a much bigger task. Um, than that. They have a remarkable, uh, you know, a great Bob Dylan collection, which they, uh, had opened, you know, very graciously opened up to the Bob Dylan archive, um, and to us for this book. Um, so again, like, you know, we wouldn't have found that, um, you know, potential last thoughts on Woody Guthrie Town Hall 1963 shot if they hadn't provided us, you know, their full photo archive. Um, so we're very grateful, uh, to them for that for the book and the center, um, you know, Dylan kept a lot of this, uh, material, um, you know, the street legal standee you were talking about, I believe comes, you know, from his collection. Um, Oh, does it really? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's part of the, the Bob Dylan archive proper. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's a ton of material that, that, you know, Columbia records kept, um, though I'm sure that today's arc of, you know, there wasn't at the time when this stuff was initially being created, uh, you know, there probably wasn't the thought that it was important. Who knew that Bob Dylan 60 years ago, we were still going to be, you know, talking about him in this way. 
So I'm sure there's things that today's archivists, you know, wish they had held on to that, you know, their predecessors had held on to. But, you know, hindsight is, you know, 2020. But in addition, yeah, Dylan um, saved a remarkable amount of stuff. And I think that's what makes the Bob Dylan archive, you know, so unique amongst the the archives in general, but particularly sort of musician archives that I've, you know, had the privilege of seeing. And then, um, yeah, thank you for bringing up sort of other collectors. I think, um, you know, the, we've supplemented the material in the book um, with material from other, from collectors. So in some cases, like uh, Mitch Blank, or Bill Pagel, those are, um, you know, foundational Bob Dylan, you know, fan collections that they've been amassing over, you know, a lifetime, and that the Bob Dylan archive has acquired that the American Song Archive, which is um, the umbrella organization of the the Bob Dylan archive um, have acquired. So those are like formally part of the archive. Um, And then, you know, there are smaller sort of collections like the Cynthia Gooding collection, which we highlight, or the, um, you know, the Bailey tapes, which we allude to in the freewheeling section that the, the Dylan Center has also acquired. But then there are just a number of really, you know, really good friends of the center, you know, I'll name, uh, you know, Jeff Gold and Barry Ullman and Adbjorn Saltmus as, as a, you know, I'm leaving out many, um, but they were three major sort of um, donors of material to this book. Um, really like amazing and, and substantive pieces. And they've, you know, been collecting everything from, you know, manuscripts like, like Barry uh, has the song to Woody manuscript, um, you know, Jeff Gold lent us. Um, uh, and they also, uh, Jeff and Barry are, are, are um, essayists as well. Um, but Jeff uh, l- l- allowed us to um, reprint uh, Jimi Hendrix hand annotated copies of Bob Dylan's greatest hits to use as part of Greg Tate's essay on um, the relationship of Hendrix and and Bob Dylan. So I think like, you know, that's like really cool and special. Um, And Oddbjorn just had all kinds of stuff from all across Dylan's life. Um, That's really incredible. Like um, uh, the Spanish language lobby card from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, all the way up to a lot of the Nobel material. Um, You know, he, he really um, very graciously opened up his incredible collection and so um you know i think in a way you know like i said the book hopefully represents not just the bob dylan archive but sort of um you know all the different you know a lot of the the collecting that's been going on around dylan for for many many years um and hopefully you know everybody can see a bit of themselves and in the you know obsessiveness of the book (laughs) For a, a guy who seems so focused on constantly moving forward, you know, he not busy born is busy dying. It, it maybe seems a little surprising that Dylan himself keeps so much of this stuff, you know, that, cause it's so, that is so backwards looking and, and, you know, but nevertheless, he, we also know the man is a, a student of history. So I guess it isn't uh, terribly surprising. It's, it's kind of funny to think that like, you know, he's asking Columbia Records, Hey, can you send me at least one of the cardboard? counter display for planet waves at the time like somebody in charge of sending him this stuff um but that leads perfectly to kind of the the last thing i want to ask you about was did you get any notes or suggestions from bob's team did that did they did they interact with you at all on that level i mean we we this is an authorized bob dylan book um and and we work very closely with uh 
his office his management team and and um certainly we we want to make sure that that uh not only are we you know telling the story correctly but you know that we're getting it right and and there's nobody who knows you know Dylan's life and work better so that that has really been a a privilege and a a great relationship yeah i i think that that's like um one of the things that may not uh I guess if you looked at the at the sort of uh, you know the back matter, you might get a sense of how complicated it is to do a book like this, particularly an authorized book like this. But you know, not only um, Dylan's management, but um, you know Universal, who own um, you know Dylan's um, music publishing, Sony, who you know own his master recordings, and like I said, all this amazing archival material that you will see interspersed throughout the book down to like all the individual photographers um you know it, it it was a very uh yeah it was very complicated um sort of you know book to put together and, and shout out to um our colleague austin short who uh who handled a great deal of the, the sort of clearances um but yeah everybody you know everybody sort of rallied around and and saw the the vision of the book and and was very um helpful um in making yeah making it you know the best it it could be um so we're very grateful to yeah from from big conglomerates record labels down to you know the just you know photographer you know fans who snapped a snapshot back in you know 1964 like we're very grateful to everybody for their participation um and yeah again hope it's something that uh you know we can all be proud of I would just be fascinated to know if Bob has some, you know, personal fondness towards like, oh, you know what? That one shot of love tour past that looked really slick. I hope that's in the book, you know, like that. <laughs> I mean, all the bric-a-brac that's been created around all the tours and all the albums over the year, whether he has some sort of like, oh, you know what? You throw that in there. That's that's really cool. And that feeds its way through the system to, to you guys. I would love, <laughs> love to find out about that kind of stuff, but he's probably got other things on his mind. Um well, yeah, uh, yeah um, creating. Some <laughs> I think next- the way you know, uh, you know where, yeah, I think where Dylan is present is we've tried to you know include quotations from you know interviews and and um, uh, things that were available to us so that you know he can tell us what he was thinking at that particular moment. As we all know, you know that can change or the story behind the thing can change, and again, that's started the the fun of being a fan and trying to um take in uh what he's given us absolutely well i said it's it's an amazing piece of work even if you have been to the center which i have lucky enough uh, to have done you absolutely will want to get this book everybody um it really is just a, a treasure trove of material and you get you know you kind of get up close to him gotta get up near the teacher if you want to learn anything you get up close to him in a way that i don't think you've ever really See, not even in say chronicles, you know, they were written by the man himself. That's he's got his own agenda there, but this, this is really a view of him and his career that is a really pretty startling. So it's an amazing achievement. And, um, I thank you both for doing the show. I really appreciate it. this was great uh, getting a chance to talk to you about this book. Thanks so much. Thanks, we appreciate really it. appreciate you having us. Absolutely. So before we, uh, end though, I have to do. The exit question, and I made one specially for for you two because you have an insight and have an access to stuff that uh, the rest of us can only dream about. And let me start with you, Parker. Um, let's say there's one item from the collection that uh, you get word from Bob himself 
you can keep. You can just take home. And if we're going to do this fantasy world, you're not denying the world that somehow it can be copied. So you're not denying the rest of the world, it, it, you know, its existence just because you have it in your living room. But is there one item that, you know, from, from pouring through all of this material, you would say, boy, I would, I would love to be able to take that home. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this. Uh, I, I, I mean, how can you choose from, you know, how can you really choose and and what is the criteria on which you choose? But um, I don't know. I was, I was zeroing on something that has like a really, you know, fascinating sort of story. So uh, maybe not the most valuable piece, but there's a, there's a draft of saved. Um, I really, love, I really love Dylan's gospel period. So there's a draft of saved that's on a deposit slip of the keyboardist Spooner Oldham's parents from down when Dylan was recording saved uh, the album in uh, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios and so um in Alabama and so um yeah I take that it's a it's a it's a cool piece and has a great story and um you know one of a kind for sure that's fantastic <laughs> oh, Mark what about you I would take the leather jacket that Dylan wore at Newport cuz I believe it would fit me <laughs> Would you wear it or would you just get it oh, get all it the shadow time. box? I, I, oh, would I, you really? I'd never I'd never take it off. No, I I uh <laughs> I I would not. But that, that's it. You know what? One last thing is that tour jacket uh that's in the book and it's in the center. I think it's the, the from one of the street legal tours where like the unicorn on the yeah. back, that leather. The the Bob Dylan Center has got to just start manufacturing those and selling those in the gift shop because I would have bought one. Oh no, it's, a, it's an amazing piece, and and there are other ones. In fact, um, there's a, a collector down in Dallas named Dave Ekstrom who uh, is a founding member of of the Bob Dylan Center, and and the last time he was up, he was wearing a a silk uh, slow train jacket, which was incredible. No, I think those need to go into production. That that particular jacket. Uh, Bill Pagel purchased from uh, Joanne Harris, who was one of the backup singers, and so it's it's a, a jacket that was only, I, from what I understand, uh, given to people on the on the tour crew. So I... it it has provenance, and uh, uh, and and yeah, Bill Bill was able to to get it, and we've got it on display. I would pay whatever the center wanted to charge for that if they had had it. In... <laughs> in the uh in the in the store as uh, we were headed out so well again uh gentlemen both thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it it's, a, it's an amazing achievement and as you you know both mentioned like bob dylan is second only to abe lincoln is number of books are written about him and coming up with something that stands above a lot of those other things is hard to do but this really does it and it's it's just really it's an amazing book so everybody uh check it out and uh thank you all for listening of course you can find Pod Dylan over on Twitter and on Blue Sky, just under Pod Dylan. And if you want to support uh, this show, you can do that by subscribing over at fmpods.com. So um, that is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And we will see you later. Bye. The Bob Dylan Center holds its grand opening in the Arts District tomorrow. Well, it's a project years in the making and is sure to become an attraction of the people to visit from all around the world. New Shelley's Burt Mommel live tonight in downtown Tulsa. Burt? Mark, Bob Dylan has yet to visit the center, and he's not expected to be here tomorrow. But officials say if and when down the road he does decide to pop in, they'll be ready.